you turn to the book of Esther, I'm going to tell the story. You might follow along through the pages. We'll focus on chapter 4, verse 13, for such a time as this. The story begins with these words. Now, it took place in the days of Ahasuerus. Most likely, he's a Persian king that we call Xerxes I. The story begins with a big party. Now, there are parties throughout the pages of this story. At almost every moment, at every turn of the story, it seems like Xerxes is bibing in some wine, throwing a party. He didn't have to have a reason. He just liked a great party. The first party lasted, are you ready, six months, 180 days. It was a party for all the officials and ministers at the palace of Susa, his winter home. And then he threw up a follow-up feast for all the citizens of Susa, great and small and rich and poor. The feast for everyone, unlike the feast for the finest citizens, lasted only seven days. Everybody was there. All the men were in one hall. All the women were in the other hall with Queen Vashti. On the last day of the feast, chapter 1, verse 10, while the king was sloshed, he was merry with wine. He commanded Vashti, his queen, to come out before him wearing her royal crown so he could display and show off her beauty. Like a stuffed deer head on a trophy mount, like a big mouth bass pinned to the wall, he was going to display her as his finest catch of all. He sent seven eunuchs to get her, I suppose the number it would take to carry her upon the queen's royal couch. But the queen, Vashti, was not in the mood for modeling. She did the absolutely unthinkable. She told the king, no, I'm not coming, no. The king exploded in wrath. He gathered together all the advisors of the land and asked them, <clears throat> being humiliated by the queen, what was the king to do? Well, <clears throat> the chamberlain said, king, you cannot let her snub you. Besides, if the queen is allowed to snub the king, then all the women will think that they can disobey their husbands too. And that would be horrible now, wouldn't it? All the men agreed. They decided if Vashti didn't want to prance of a peacock before her prince, then they were going to give her the heave-ho, and they would find a queen even more beautiful than she who would strut her stuff in front of all the people. The advice, it pleased the king. He ordered it done. Now, Xerxes in this story doesn't come across as a real thinker on his own. He does what everybody else around him suggests that he do. They began what I call the great queen hunt. 
They had a beauty contest throughout all the land of Persia. Think the bachelor, if you want to sin for a moment this morning. Think the bachelor. It was like a Miss America pageant. They sent scouts to all the counties looking for the loveliest ladies to bring forth to their Lord. It was set up just like a beauty pageant. There were semi-finalists who would receive a year's worth of beauty treatments. Mary Kay every day for a year to get ready for the king. And then after a year of soaking in the sauna, caressing in cosmetics, toning and tanning, they were going to narrow it down to seven finalists. Someone, the envelope please. Esther didn't tell anybody she was a Jew. Esther didn't tell anybody she was a Jew. Her uncle Mordecai was something of a foster father for her because Esther herself was an orphan. And every day, Uncle Mordecai went to see how Esther was doing in her beauty treatments and he had strictly forbidden Esther from telling anyone that she was a Jew because it wasn't a popular thing to be a Jew in Persia. The lovely ladies lined up for the Lord of the land. His majesty, the king, checked them over one by one. But the moment that Esther appeared, the contest was over and Xerxes loved Esther above all the other women of the land. He made her queen right then and there. And you guessed it, the king then threw a party, Esther's party. Meanwhile, Mordecai, her beloved foster father, kept his post daily at the king's gate trying to be close to his niece. He had become a shrewd observer of all the life that was happening there in the capital. And he overheard a plot to kill the king, arranged by two of the king's most trusted men, the inner circle, Big Than and Teresh. He told Esther, Esther told the king, an investigation followed and they found those men and they hanged them. And they jotted down in the chronicles of the king that Mordecai was the one that was responsible for saving the king, recorded it for all the ages. Meanwhile, the king needed a right-hand man. Besides, if Xerxes was going to party every single day, someone had to be in politics for him, and he chose Haman to be his prince. Haman is such an evil character that a Jewish tradition emerged that every time the story of Esther is read and Haman's name is mentioned, the kids hiss his name, Haman, Haman. He's awful. Now Haman is megalomaniacal. Put another way, he'd never met anyone that he loved more than he loved himself. His head was so big that it wouldn't fit through a double wide door. 
When Haman pranced to the kingdom, everybody was supposed to bow down to the second man in the land, second only to King Xerxes himself. But Mordecai, Esther's foster father, refused to bow down. He was a Jew, and the Jews only bowed down to God. He would not bend the knee to Haman. And that made Haman furious. He really thought he might ought to kill Mordecai on the spot, but if Mordecai wouldn't bow down, he thought that he might ought to kill the whole race of people that Mordecai represented, a race that refused to bow down to Haman. The evil in his heart, like evil always does, overreached, and if unopposed, this evil would become a holocaust. It was a plan to exterminate all the Jews of Persia. A day was set for their extermination. He sold the king on the whole plan. King, there's a, a certain people, he said with a slur in his voice. They're scattered throughout the kingdom and their laws are different than our laws. And well, they're a troublesome people and they don't keep the king's laws and they're dangerous to the kingdom. And I'm surprised that you even tolerate them, O king. If it pleases the king, I would like to destroy all of them. Let's pay 10,000 talents, the one who will carry out the king's plan to exterminate these people. It was a master stroke of political paranoia, racist innuendo. The idea, of course, pleased a king who was putty in the hands of anybody who flattered him or alarmed him sufficiently. He took off the signet ring and handed it over to Haman and said, you do whatever you want to do with these people. The king wrote out a decree and it was signed and sealed irrevocably with the royal seal. The letter authorized the destruction, to kill, annihilate the Jews, young and old and women and children. Oh, one day, the 13th day of the 12th month of Adar. The couriers fanned out through the countryside with the king's resolution as a decree at the same time was proclaimed out loud in Susa, the city's uh, city citadel. Meanwhile, the king and Haman settled back to drink while the city was dumbstruck. The annihilation of a whole race of people. For Mordecai, Esther's foster father heard the decree. He rent his clothes. It all started with him because he refused to bow down to Haman. He put on sackcloth and ashes and began weeping and mourning publicly. He went through the city crying out loud, weeping bitterly. And Esther's maid came and told her what her foster father Mordecai was doing out there, weeping bitterly and embarrassing everybody. Now Esther, the Jewish queen. Now remember, shh, it's a secret. No one yet knows she's a Jew. She had not heard of the decree to kill her and her people. 
She sent Mordecai some new clothes and begged him to put them on, put a smile on his face, and move forward in life. But he refused to remove his sackcloth and to dry his tears. Finally, Esther sent a maid to see what was distressing her uncle so much. And Mordecai sent back a copy of the decree and begged her to make intercession before the king on behalf of her people. 4.11. Esther had to think about this. Everybody knows if you disturb the king without his invitation, if you go into his inner chamber, you will be killed unless the king holds forth his golden scepter. It was a risky life or death decision to enter the king's inner chambers without an invitation, and he had not invited Esther for 30 days. Mordecai knew that Esther was on the fence. Have you ever been on the fence about doing the right thing? He knew that she was backed into a corner. He knew that she was at that moment of crisis in her life that revealed who she really was. That's true. When we have a crisis in our life, it reveals exactly who we are. Was Esther going to be quiet and try to save her own self? Or was she going to be brave and stand up for God's people? In chapter 4, verses 13 through 14, hear the harsh words of her uncle Mordecai. Do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows if you have not attained royalty, there it is, for such a time as this. I'm until this point in the story. The only thing we know about Esther is that she's one good-looking girl. She is not queen because of her courage. She is queen because she's cute. No longer could she sail through the sea of life because of her beauty. Now she had to have courage. She had to show her Jewish faith, her allegiance to God, her allegiance to God's people. But will she? What type of character will emerge from this crisis? We know that she's beautiful, but the question on the table is, will she be brave? Stephen Shoemaker recalled what pop culture wizard Andy Warhol said in his now famous line that everyone has 15 minutes of fame. I don't know so much about the fame part, but... We do have each of us that 15 minutes when in our life the spotlight is on us, when all the world is watching. We each have that slender moment of opportunity. 
those crisis moments, those times of decision when something crucial in our lives and the lives of those around us is absolutely at stake at that moment. Will we respond in faith? Will we respond with our best self, with our truest character? Come forth. The stories of the faithful from Scripture are meant to be training in character for me and for you, for our 15 minutes of fame. In those times of crisis, our best can come to the fore. The virtues of character will shine. As Flannery O'Connor wrote, The one in the violent situation reveals qualities least dispensable in his personality, those qualities which are all he will have to take into eternity with him. Those moments of crisis in your life and those moments of crisis in my life reveal who we really are. All that's left of us for eternity. Esther rose to the challenge Taking the bold initiative, she sent the word back to her foster father, Mordecai, gather all the Jews in Susa. Don't you eat, don't you drink for three days? Well, my maidens and I, we will fast alongside you. You pray, and then I will break the royal law, and I will enter the king's inner chamber. And if I perish, I perish. Yes, It was for such a time as this that God had placed her in the palace. On the third day, after the fasting, the praying, she put on her royal regalia. She stood in the king's inner court. The king saw her, and she found favor in his sight, and he held out the golden scepter, and he spared her life. The king was moved. Was it her beauty? Was it her courage? What do you desire, O Queen Esther? I will give you anything you ask for up to half of my kingdom. The queen said, I can't tell you right now, but if you and Haman will show up to a party, now he loved a party, remember. She would make her request known when the king, number one, and Haman, number two, and the land came The honor was not lost on Haman. We can be sure about that. He was going to be with the king and the queen in their own palace partying. After the first party, the queen made an odd statement. She said, well, I really can't tell you today either. If you would come again tomorrow, tomorrow I will be able to make my request known. A literary genius in the writer by the author, it holds us in suspense another day. What is it? We too, as readers of the text, have to come back the next day to find out exactly what the queen has on her heart. Haman, no doubt, was ecstatic. But when he left, he had to walk through the king's gates, and there's old Mordecai at the gates like he always is. And Mordecai refused to bow down yet again. Oh, Haman was eaten up with anger. He went home and revealed to his pathetic soul, to his wife and friends, he recounted all his accomplishments. And by his list, they were quite a few. His riches, the numbers of his sons. 
I guess he forgot to mention his daughters. Daughters are important too. And all his political promotions up to the chief prince and now the honor of dining with the king. He told his wife and his friends of all of his greatest. <clears throat> I imagine even his wife rolling her eyes at this point in the story. I mean, when someone gives a constant recitation of their resume, it gets old pretty fast. This old gal put up with a lifetime of listening to Haman's brag. But he says, I can't enjoy any of the great things I've done. No matter how good life is to me, no matter how great my accomplishments, because Mordecai will not bow down to me, I just can't enjoy it. Life. Oh, he was very immature, this Haman he was. The sidelined glance at Mordecai does him in. Haman might be like some of us. He can't be happy with what he has because all he thinks about is what he doesn't have. Which is one old guy bowing down to him named Mordecai. His wife came up with a grand solution, I think, just to give him something to do. For her pouting friend, she said, build a gallows 50 cubits high. Now, Noah's ark is only 30 cubits high. This from ground to top is 55 feet tall at another 20 feet. That's a long way to fall for a hanging. 75 feet tall, these gallows, and hang him. It just so happened on that evening, the king could not sleep. He tossed and turned in the bed, and there is nothing to make you sleep more than reading from the King's Chronicles. They are horrible history. They'll put you under. And Mordecai said, would somebody read me those boring chronicles, someone? And they just happened to turn to the page about Mordecai. And when Mordecai found out that Big Fan and Teresh, his inner circle, were going to kill him, and, and the king said, Xerxes says, by the way, what do we do for Mordecai since he saved my soul? And they said, we didn't do anything. Well, the morning came. About that time, Haman entered in, and the king said to Haman, what would the king do for someone the king really wants to honor? And Haman, being so self-centered, is sure the king is talking about himself. And he said, I tell you what I'd do, king, thinking he was going to get the treatment. I would put the king's robe on that guy's back. I would put that guy on the king's horse. I would ride him through the town and shout, and everybody would bow down to him. Could life be any better for Haman? Good, said the king. Go get Mordecai and go get my robe and go get my horse. Mordecai, Haman was on his way in to ask the king's permission to hang Mordecai on the gallows he'd already commanded to be built. Well, that's the man the king wishes to honor. Well, about the time that Haman is pouting with his pity party at home again, the king's servants arrive to take him to the queen's second banquet. Finally, Esther revealed her request. If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be given to me and the life of my people. She unveils for the first time her true identity. She is a Jew. My people, 7-4, have been sold and destroyed. They're to be killed and annihilated. 
Who has done this thing, commanded the king. And Esther pointed Haman, a foe and an enemy who is among us. She points the finger at Haman. The king is so angry that Haman has put his beautiful queen at risk. He walks out into the garden and he's beginning to think about how he's going to kill Haman. And Haman knows his life's at stake. The queen is on her couch. He falls down sort of on top of her at her feet, begging her. And the king walks in and says, what are you doing this? Are you molesting my queen in my own house? And one of the servants said, king, we've got some really nice gallows we've just built. And I hate for those to go to waste. They're awfully tall. They'll get the job done. And Haman is ashen face. But what about the Jews, said Esther. And the king said, well, Persian law is Persian law. It's irrevocable. It can't be changed. And all he could do was counteract it by signing another decree that granted the Jews the right to defend themselves when the assassins came. And on the day of their extermination, the 13th day of Adar, they destroyed those who had come to destroy them. Now, let's get this straight. Let's review the story. Haman is hanged on the gallows he built for Mordecai. The mercenaries who were seeking to kill the Jews are murdered. And the 13th day of Adar, instead of being a holy cause for the Jews, becomes a day of deliverance and victory. And Mordecai takes off his sackcloth and ashes and wears the king's robe. Yes, for such a time as this. There was Esther in the palace. Esther teaches us that God needs our hands and our hearts, our minds and our bodies to do the work of his deliverance. But he also teaches us through the words of the foster father Mordecai, if we're not willing to be used by God, then God will find those ready to do his business and we'll be the ones that are left out. For such a time as this, that moment of crisis, that time of testing, we find out, like Esther found out, who we really are. I know what Esther did in the story. Now we're on your story and my story. And that moment comes in your life to choose faith or fear. What will you choose? For such a time as this, God has placed you in his sovereignty right where God wants you to be used to bring glory to your God and bring salvation to God's people. Let us pray. Oh God, those on television and those in this great sanctuary, 
There are some whose lives have been arranged for this sermon, for this moment, for they themselves stand at just such a moment in her life or his life. They've been pondering all weekend what they're going to do. The easy thing or the right thing. The courageous thing or the cowardly decision. I pray that we are moved by this story of this great heroine, Esther, a powerful woman of Scripture. To give glory to God and to serve with our all, even at risk, God's people. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.